Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to what I guess qualifies as a solo cast. Just one dude and his mic. I wanted to take a little bit of time, sort of as a an intro to the Better Outcomes show, if you would, and talk a little bit about just the philosophy here at Rehab U and the Better Outcomes show and talk about how we view the current problems in our healthcare system, in our healthcare environment, and the lens through which we see the possibilities of new healthcare. It's very easy to to kind of lose that in the mess, if you would, in the day-to-day when you're grinding it out in the clinic, when you're going from here to there, between patient homes if you're in home health or if you're you know going from room to room in a facility or having patients run in and out of your clinic these principles get easily lost in the shuffle so i want to talk with you a little bit about what i call a manifesto for a new healthcare i mean let's get real here healthcare is broken particularly in the US right you know it I know it. Any clinician that's ever worked anywhere in the field knows this to be true, right? We, we come into the field, and I always say this to clients and to students, most people go into healthcare from a deep desire to, to help others, to serve others. And it's difficult to go from that, even in school, even in college, and in, in the training programs for our our healthcare providers, it's still very much idealized. This idea and this notion that you are a clinician and that you're helping heal people. And then you graduate, you pass your boards, you become certified, and you end up finding a different reality within our healthcare system. Primarily, this comes from, at least the way I look at it, and, and what other people in, involved in healthcare policy and decision makers have to say about the topic as well, but we all feel the burden of time-based productivity measures, right? You know it, utilization rates, productivity expectations, efficiency, basically taking healthcare and turning it into a spreadsheet. I'm fond of saying that healthcare consultants ruin healthcare. <laughs> and and the reason that that's true, or at least the way, the reason I say it is because We've moved from a situation in healthcare where it very much was about one person who was skilled in the art of healing, which would be a clinician or a physician or or a nurse or something like that, helping another human being who is on a road to recovery. And that's what healthcare ultimately is. That's what it was for a long time until metrics got involved and I, I understand you need metrics you need 
You need to understand how the services that you're rendering, the services that you're delivering are having an impact on your clients. You need to do that in a way that is financially uh, sustainable. You need to be able to keep the lights on, pay your clinicians, pay your staff. You need to do it all in a way that is efficient and is the least costly for your patient or for your client. So I understand all that. The problem is that we've put those productivity metrics, those numbers, those formulas on a spreadsheet, and we've created this huge soul-crushing machine that's really aimed at extracting revenue from our patients, or in, in our case here in the U.S., from our patients' insurance providers or the third-party payers that reimburse clinicians and organizations for their services, and we set up this system that's designed to extract revenue from that in exchange for, quote-unquote, units of treatment or time, minutes, anything that it, it just, it's all about the minutes, right? It's all about the time that we spend as opposed to the value we create, as opposed to the outcomes that our patients experience as a result of the services that we provide. I mean, day after day, millions of patients walk into clinics across the U.S., walk into healthcare systems, hospitals, healthcare facilities, and they're, they're seeking help right? They've got some kind of physical, maybe emotional or mental health dysfunction or challenge. And more often than not, they're met with indifference on the part of the healthcare system. I'm, I'm not saying that the, the people that they meet are indifferent. I mean, sometimes that happens. I come from the VA healthcare system. And I always said that the people that work at the VA, most of them start off working in the VA sold on the mission of the VA, which is to serve those who have served us. So this is primarily for the the audience here in the U.S. And most people believe in that. They want to help these these people that have oftentimes laid their life, their health, their futures on the line to protect us, to protect the life that we hold dear here in the U.S. And they go into working at the VA out of this sense of mission, And then what happens is that they work for the VA. (laughs) They work for a system that is so bureaucratic, so cumbersome to operate in, that anybody, after 20 years working in that system, becomes a cynical, indifferent individual. Apathetic is the, the term I would use to describe it. And it's not surprising given the way that that system is set up, the way the environment is pushing clinicians really to the point of burnout and apathy. So it's not a surprise, given the reimbursement structure that we have in the U.S., given the economic incentives or the business incentives, it's not a surprise to see the results. It's not a surprise to see people putting numbers ahead of people or organizations putting numbers and metrics ahead of the true lived experience of the patients and the clients that they treat and they serve. I mean, ultimately, healthcare should be about one thing and one thing only, and that's people. But how many clinics, and I'm sure you've worked in some of them, I know I have, clinics or organizations or healthcare professionals, even managers and clinicians, individual clinicians that end up living their lives and making decisions based on the numbers. Metrics and spreadsheets tend to drive 
a lot of the healthcare decisions that are made in the United States. And again, I understand the need to make sure that the services that you're rendering are efficient, are cost effective, and providing the best value given the cost for the service. I understand that. But the reality is when we focus entirely on the numbers and when we're dealing with formulas on an Excel sheet, it's very easy to make decisions that look good on paper, that you can flowchart in your strategic planning meetings, that you can talk about through your PR and public communications, that you can educate clinicians and new staff on. And it looks perfect. You know, one step leads to another, one process leads to another, and it's great on paper. But the reality is that oftentimes what happens is our patients, the people that we should be serving, that we should be focused on, get lost in that mix. They fall through the cracks. Uh, Patients themselves feel lost. They feel forgotten. They feel ignored by a system that prioritizes efficiency and productivity over their own personal experiences, their own priorities, and their own goals. I mean, that's probably why uh, at least according to the literature, close to 70% of patients in ancillary healthcare services, primarily physiotherapy or physical rehabilitation, uh, PT and OT, speech, that sort of thing, approximately 70% of patients in those settings will never complete their course of care. And that's a staggering number when you think about it. I mean, think of seven out of 10 people who might have a chronic musculoskeletal pain, a chronic mental health condition, a chronic disease or diagnosis that's limiting their day-to-day function, that's lowering their quality of life, and seven out of 10 of them aren't going to finish their plan of care. What you can extrapolate from that is that seven out of 10 of them, at least seven out of 10 of them, aren't resolving their symptoms. They're not recovering. They're not re-entering into a life that they want to live. Oftentimes they're staying in a situation, in a life, where the pain is still there when they wake up in the, in the day, every day, where they're continually limited in what they are and are not capable of doing. And that in and of itself can lead to depression, anxiety, hopelessness, and then ultimately indifference and apathy on the part of our patients. How hard is it to get a a client who's been through three or four different clinicians before they come into your office, your practice, for something like chronic low back pain? And I come from the outpatient orthopedic world, so for me it was, and it was outpatient upper extremity specialty clinics, so it was shoulder pain, chronic shoulder and neck pain. And how hard it was to get those patients those clients to buy into one, just the idea that there's hope that the pain doesn't have to always be there or that they can manage it in a way that does not negatively affect their lives. Part of that is because they've been put through a system, through a healthcare system that is systematically crushed any hopes of feeling heard let alone treat it effectively. I think anybody that's involved in healthcare in any level, even those that are involved in studying the effects of our healthcare system here in the U.S., would agree that it's 
time for a change, right? It's time for healthcare organizations in general across the boards to commit to serving the individual needs of each unique patient that they're charged with serving. And it's time for clinicians to finally stand up and say, you know, enough is enough. We're tired of being crushed under this machine of productivity above all else, of putting numbers ahead of people. Now to do this, it means that we need to radically change the way we view healthcare. We need to radically change possibly even the business structures that fundamentally support our healthcare system, right? We need a new framework, a new paradigm, if you would, a new way of looking at what ultimately should be and what once was a noble profession of healthcare. In order to do that, we need to make some personal commitments to ourselves professionally, but also within the organizations that we work with. And I'll outline at least what I call the eight commitments for a new healthcare. If you're a solo clinician working in a private practice out of your home office or out of a small rented space, all the way up through whether you're an executive in the C-suite at a multi-facility healthcare system, these eight commitments truly are required if what we want at the end of the day is a healthcare system that delivers not only effective treatment, but delivers what our patients ultimately expect and require and will be demanding, I believe, as the time marches on here. And ultimately that's to be heard and that's to be treated as a person as opposed to a diagnosis or a number on a spreadsheet. And, and that leads me to the first commitment, commitment number one, which is what I call adopting a biopsychosocial approach to healthcare. Now, if you follow this podcast for much longer, you'll notice that we've got two upcoming episodes, interviews with folks that are deeply involved in a biopsychosocial approach to healthcare using the tenets or the principles of that philosophy of care to affect real and positive changes on behalf of their clients. But ultimately, when you adopt a biopsychosocial approach, you're in a position where you're rejecting cookie cutter treatment protocols. You know what I'm talking about. Those one size fits, fits most and kind of plug and play intervention treatment plans. They can be very easy to fall into, especially if you're in a situation where you've got high patient volume and what you're trying to do is get quote unquote more efficient, right? But what those protocols and what those cookie cutter treatment plans do is they fail to address the nuances of each patient. So if you don't know what the biopsychosocial approach is, I encourage you to read about it. You can go to rehabupracticesolutions.com slash biopsychosocial for a pretty 
at least in my opinion, right? I wrote it. So it's a great article. Uh, it's a good overview of what the biopsychosocial approach is. And it even walks through a kind of a high overview of a, of the clinical application of it, uh, in, in treating something like chronic pain. So you can do that. Like I said, you can always follow along this podcast for the, the coming episodes where we talk about the biopsychosocial treatment approach for individuals with chronic pain. But basically, what you need to understand about it is that ultimately, we're all people. Our patients are people. And people are affected by the biological, for sure. Oftentimes, that's why they come to us, right? They've got a pulled muscle. They've got a an injury. They've had a surgery. There's some sort of pathophysiological thing going on or process going on there there's a healing process in play or some kind of pathophysiological dysfunction right and that that's what tends to get the most attention because for the long time in healthcare we were based on what was a biomedical model there was a symptom it was caused by some kind of tissue dysfunction or some kind of endocrine dysfunction or something going on within the body some biological process was broken and what needed to happen was a clinician usually a doctor needed to prescribe a pill needed to do something do something with the patient or to the patient to fix that dysfunctional process well what we're what we've noticed and what we've discovered over the years all of the research that has been coming out in the realm of neuroscience, in the realm of psychology even, is that aside from the biological, our patients are very much affected by psychological and environmental or social factors, each of which is entirely unique to every single patient in your clinic or in your health system. What that means is you can't rely simply on a diagnosis or a symptom or a set of symptoms to determine which treatment option, which assessment tool, or even which outcome measure will be the most effective for that patient. Everything from the patient's social environment, their past experience, their past experience within the healthcare system, their past experiences growing up, social learning and all that, and even their readiness to change impacts the issue that they're seeing you for. You know, it might be shoulder pain on the referral sheet, but there's often something deeper, especially in issues of chronic or long-lasting diagnoses. So since we understand that everybody is unique, and everybody isn't just the sum of their symptoms or the sum of their diagnoses. We understand how physical, psychological, and social factors interact, interact throughout a patient's experience of a disease or injury or illness. We must understand then that there are too many factors at play for those rigid protocols or those cookie-cutter treatment programs. So understanding that is the first step. Understanding that every human that comes into your clinic is uniquely different. 
And ultimately, it is our job as clinicians, as healthcare system administrators, as healthcare executives, to ensure that our organizations, that our policies, and even that our treatment plans and interventions are molded around that patient's unique circumstance, as opposed to molding or trying to cram the patient, that unique individual, into our preformed mold of what the process typically should be or look like. So that's commitment number one, is to take a biopsychosocial approach to healthcare. Commitment number two follows along the same lines in that we need to prioritize both organizationally and as individual clinicians and as individual healthcare professionals, we need to prioritize improving our own interpersonal skills and abilities, and we need to focus on building meaningful relationships with each patient. Relationships, ultimately, that are built on trust, empathy, and caring. Again, Every patient that walks into your office or into your clinic or into your healthcare system is a person, and that person is affected and is impacted, not just by the diagnosis and their symptoms, but they're impacted and affected by the psychological, by the social. So it goes really without saying that at the very least, our patients expect to be treated by clinicians who are not only professional and competent. I've always said that, I tell this to students and to clients, competence is a baseline. You don't get brownie points for being competent at your field or in your specialization. But on top of being professional and being competent, you need to be, uh, patients call it friendly. (laughs) You need to be friendly and you need to be caring. There's research out there that shows that patients actually place a great deal of weight on their clinician's ability to communicate effectively. Everything from explaining what a diagnosis means to educating the patient on self-management strategies, patients place a great deal of weight on their clinician's ability to do those things. In fact, this research also shows that high-quality patient-therapist interactions are often more important to patients than the things that we always hear about on our advertisements and in our marketing. Uh, Convenient clinic locations, great parking, uh, sometimes even the organization of care, and even treatment outcomes. We feel as clinicians that as long as our patients feel better, as long as our patients have good outcomes, they'll rate us better on the satisfaction surveys, or they'll want to come back to us, they'll want to see us again. And what some of this research is pointing to is that sometimes the clinical outcome isn't the the top priority. What's the top priority for a lot of these patients, especially patients that might be dealing with uh, maybe a specialized issue where they've gone to a few different clinicians or a few different services before they come to see you, is the interaction they have with you. Do they feel heard, listened to, and cared for? Or do they feel like they're just another number on your checklist, another uh, thing on your to-do list before you have to go home for the day? So given that information, given that understanding, 
we should all in the healthcare space should be trying to do anything you, we can do to improve the individual interactions patients have with all of our staff, with all of our clinicians. And it starts ultimately with the way we communicate, not just the verbal language, not just the word choice, but also that body language and active listening. Again, healthcare is a personal service involving a human experience. And patients want that experience. They want to feel that their clinician understands their situation, knows how to help, and truly cares about them. I often tell my clients that I work with is the best clinicians, those that are sought out by their patients and their patients' friends and their patients' neighbors and their patients' dog walkers, are those clinicians who are able to make a real human connection felt during their interactions with their patients. And that kind of wraps up commitment number two, which is a focus on interpersonal skills and improving communication. Again, the idea that healthcare is a human experience means that ultimately we need to be flexible. We need to be flexible in understanding to our patients' unique situations. And commitment number three is we will put people ahead of procedures and policies. Funny story, I was working at the Department of Veterans Affairs. I worked in their, I mentioned this before, their outpatient specialty rehab clinic, which basically meant people that didn't get better at primary care, people that didn't get better going to see quote unquote standard therapy, people, uh, veterans that didn't didn't have any other options for treatment. Maybe they've already had surgery or maybe they were having surgery. They came to our clinic. So we dealt with very complex cases, complex post-surgical rehabilitation, chronic pain, issues related to post-traumatic stress disorder and, and chronic musculoskeletal pain. The environment at the VA in particular uh, highlighted, for me at least, one of the big major issues in healthcare today which is that in an effort to become more efficient, in an effort to develop standardized operating procedures, which again, I'm a policy guy, I like developing standardized operating procedures and systems that people can use to guide their practice. I totally understand that. But in an effort to become efficient, in an effort to systematize healthcare, we tend to place and prioritize the rules or the policies over the people that are in our clinics, in our healthcare systems, seeking care. Again, part of that does stem from our, our biomedical history, this idea where we're just treating dysfunctions and symptoms, but it really stems from the, the environment of, of efficiency and productivity that healthcare finds itself in. When everything is a number, a unit, or even a line on a spreadsheet, it's easy to make decisions without considering the impact that they have on the real people on the other end of those decisions. Take, for example, at the VA, we had a, a blanket requirement for individuals or patients that wanted to see orthopedics. They wanted to get 
an MRI done of their shoulder. Maybe they even wanted, they thought they needed shoulder surgery. Either way, they wanted to see the orthopedic surgeon. We had a blanket requirement that anybody with the diagnosis at one point, I can't remember the ICD-9 code, but now it's like M25.511 or 0.512, which was just pain in shoulder, shoulder pain, right or left. Then anybody with that diagnosis had to come to uh, OT or PT for eight weeks before they could see orthopedic surgery. It's very easy to make those blanket policies because I was there in the C-suite when they decided to make this policy or when they pitched it around, or at least when we were discussing it on multiple occasions, that they did some kind of study or some kind of internal review and I can't remember the percentage of patients, but X percentage of patients that had a diagnosis of shoulder pain went to PT and OT and didn't have to go see orthopedics. So X percentage of them didn't, they were able to successfully manage their symptoms without taking it to the next level. So it's very easy to make that policy and say, well, then if it's that, if it's that percentage, is that great of a number? We'll just make it so that everybody has to go through that. And that we will catch all those people that might've been able to handle it at a lower level of care before reaching out to a surgeon. We'll get through that system, get caught up in that system, and they'll be fine. And on paper, it looks great. You can make projections. You can calculate recovery rates, costs, projected cost of care, and all that good stuff. But blindly applying that policy to every patient with shoulder pain as their diagnosis Again, it fails to consider the individual circumstances or the factors that may make that particular treatment or that course of care ineffective for that individual patient. Many patients came through that clinic needing surgery. They needed surgery. They had an MRI that showed, you know, full thickness rotator cuff tear and they had limited range of motion. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not one for wanting to push people under the knife, but the eight weeks was a little much. And we were in effect delaying the inevitable, delaying what was a necessary procedure in order to meet this blanket policy of eight weeks of therapy before you could even speak to a a physician. And that was not unique to my clinic. That was not even unique to this one service line within this greater healthcare system. But there were many patients that were stuck in treatment plans that aren't appropriate for them, that weren't going to fix them, that weren't going to help their symptoms, because some bureaucrat somewhere made a blanket policy about their particular diagnosis based off of data that looked good on the numbers, it looked good on the spreadsheets. But it's the patient, not that bureaucrat, that ends up suffering as a result of those policies. So again, it's not that the policies are bad. It's not that we shouldn't try to to do something to prevent a lot of patients that might be able to handle their symptoms or their diagnosis at a lower level of care from being able to do that. However, we can't, and what often happened at the VA was that people who legitimately needed to bypass that eight weeks were met with that indifference and that apathy on the part of the healthcare system that said, well, you just need to finish your eight weeks and then we'll see you in orthopedics. That is a problem. 
It's not that the policy was in place. It's that that policy was ironclad. And there was no way to even have a hope of convincing somebody to bypass it. In the three and a half, four years that I was there, I was there from, well, four years, I was there from 2013 to 2017. In all those years, I got two patients that I advocated for, two patients to bypass the eight-week rule. And one of them, the only reason they bypassed that eight-week rule was because somehow or other they had received an MRI because they had a car accident, a motor vehicle accident. And that's why they ended up bypassing the rule because they had an MRI already and they had a history of a traumatic injury that pushed them through. That's the problem. That's when policies are placed ahead of individuals. Policies are great. We definitely want them. You need them. Standard operating procedures. They're great to systematize your your process of care. But the second those policies and those procedures begin impeding and negatively impacting your patients, the care they receive and the outcomes they experience, it's time to rethink how you're applying them in your setting and in your system. Following up on commitment number three, the following commitment, commitment number four, is being able to confidently communicate the value that our treatments and our services provide to the patients who receive them. So again, if your policy dictates your treatment, it's very difficult to communicate the value of that treatment. If your underlying reason is, well, you need to do it because it's policy. (laughs) You need to be able to communicate the value, confidently communicate the value that your services are going to provide to your patients or your clients. Now, for decades, clinicians, clinics, and healthcare systems have relied on, you know, quote unquote, being in network to avoid even talking about value. They didn't have to. Patients simply went where their doctors sent them. They did whatever the doctor said to do. They did whatever the clinician said to do. And if that was you know, eight weeks of therapy, that was eight weeks of therapy. But all that is changing and changing rapidly. Patients are beginning to be more picky about which providers they seek out in general. Most clinicians are in denial about the fact <laughs> that most patients have Googled you before they show up to you. Most patients have done some digging, you know, healthgrades.com, rate my doctor. All of these sites have popped up. They popped up for a reason. It's because patients are beginning to look. They're beginning, beginning to be a little bit more judicious in the spending of their healthcare dollars, especially in an environment where out of pocket maximums continue to increase and coverage seems to decrease. So patients are paying more and more for their health care, which means that they are beginning to be a little bit more wary about going on to get along. Rising health care costs, which would essentially be those deductibles, the co-pays, the co-insurance, combined with the advent of this wonderful thing we call the internet, means that patients have a choice in who they see and what they participate in Laws like direct access laws that allow uh, clients to and patients to see ancillary healthcare services without needing the referral of a doctor also contribute to this. It means that we as organizations and as clinicians and as administrators need to be able to effectively communicate the value that your services and your organization brings to the table. 
You need to have a value discussion with your patients. You need to have them identify their desired outcomes or their goals. You want to attach some kind of metrics to those outcomes. And then you want to frame the cost of the treatment that you're going to deliver or the services you're going to deliver to them in terms of achieving those goals. Again, we are, we are moving to a very much a consumer-driven system of healthcare, and it is going to be more and more important as the years drag on for you and your organization to be able to clearly and confidently communicate the value that you bring to the table in each and every patient engagement. Which brings us to commitment number five, which is prioritizing that patient engagement and experience. I mean, if all you want to do is run a therapy mill or an assembly line practice, you've all seen them. I know you have out there. Every patient comes in, they get their heat, their ice, they do the same five exercises the patients before them. Maybe they get some hands-on treatment, then they get the ice for a couple minutes and then they leave and they come back and do it again in two days, three days. If all you want to do is run one of those practices, <clears throat> good luck. <laughs> Um, but you don't really need to care about patient engagement or experience, at least for now. Like I said, the healthcare landscape is shifting and those places will hopefully be going the way of the dodo in the near future. But if you don't necessarily care about their engagement in treatment, then you don't necessarily care about the experience they're receiving. I mean, you want them to have a good enough experience that they'll come back for their next treatment, right? So you can charge them again. But the priority and the focus isn't the patient's active engagement or participation in treatment. Clinics and clinicians and organizations that want to make a real impact in their patients' lives have to think differently, and they do think differently. They prioritize patients being actively engaged in treatment. They want patients to be involved in the goal setting, in the treatment planning, and the benchmarking, and more so than just that silly question that everybody asks, what do you want out of treatment? but they want their patients actively involved in it. And it ensures that each patient has a higher chance of achieving their desired outcomes or goals. I've written about in the past the importance of active treatments or treatment strategies versus passive treatment strategies. You know, the idea that what we're trying to do as clinicians is give patients the tools and the skills and the knowledge they need to manage their own dysfunction or diagnosis, especially in areas of chronic disease or chronic pain management. But we want ultimately our clients to be in a position where they can be in the driver's seat of their own healthcare. We want to limit their dependence upon us as you know, the person that cracks their back or adjusts their muscle or stretches this or does this to them for them to feel better. And we want to empower them to become the change agents in their own lives because it has better outcomes for them. They're going to become functionally more independent, less dependent on care. Even if they continue to experience their symptoms, they're able to deal with them effectively on their own. And what that does for a patient not only increases their own confidence, their own hope in their ability to recover, but it also fundamentally changes the relationship that they have with you as the clinician and with you as the healthcare system. You know, no longer are you the, the transactional, you're not on the transactional side of healthcare anymore, 
where the patient comes in, you do something to them, they feel better, they leave. They might come back whenever they feel bad again. But you become partners. You become a trusted guide, if you would, giving those patients, those clients, the tools and the knowledge they need to manage their own care. So you become that trusted advisor instead of a uh, Mr. Fix-It. So again, you need to prioritize patient engagement and the experience that patients are having in your clinic. Commitment number six would be embracing transparency throughout the treatment process. And this is the kicker, including the financial costs to our patients. Again, this becomes easy if you've already taken commitment number four and you're able to confidently communicate the value that you provide to your patients. But let's say you haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) You know what sucks? And I know you've experienced this. I've experienced this over the course of my life. You call a clinic to set up the appointment, whatever it is. In our case, it was my wife had shoulder surgery, so she was going to need some rehab afterwards. And we decided for the, for the sake of our marriage that we were not going to be, that we were not going to be having me do the rehab. So she set up the, the appointment of physical therapy and they told her, sure, uh, you can come in. You will see you this many times. You, this is your copay. This is about what you can expect to pay. And we did. She went in and she saw the therapist. We paid our copays every time up front. And then we went on our way. And then you know what about Three months after that last appointment, we got something in the mail from that same clinic that told us this is about how much you can expect to pay. And it was a freaking huge bill. (laughs) It's one of those what I call what the hell is this kind of bills. Luckily, you know, we we were in a position to pay it. But many patients aren't. Many patients might even rate the their experience in your clinic based off of that you know if you've done any work on or or reading about psychology and the peak end rule that end experience tends to taint or tends to affect the way we look back at the experience as a whole now we kind of knew what to expect because we're both in well i was involved in healthcare, so i knew that the odds of us having a bill afterwards was pretty high i didn't know what it was going to be and again we were in a position to pay it but what about those patients that aren't in any way involved in healthcare? Maybe they're an accountant. Maybe they're a teacher. And maybe they're a carpenter or a construction worker. And they don't, you know, most people don't really have a true understanding of how the healthcare system works, how their coverage works. And they called you and you said, yeah, you got a, your insurance says you have a $10 copay, $20 copay. I know that's super low these days, right? A $20 copay. And then they cover you know, X percentage or whatever. And then three months later, the patient gets a bill for five, six hundred, seven hundred dollars. Well, that is definitely going to negatively impact the way they talk about your clinic. <laughs> I know because I've heard it before from patients. Yeah, this this clinic told me that I was going to only pay fifty or sixty dollars over the course of treatment, and I ended up getting a bill for three hundred dollars. Crazy. They need to get their stuff together over there. The reality is that we as as clinicians don't oftentimes we don't, we might not know. But we need to be honest with that, with our patients about that if that's the case. But we do need to do everything we can to be as transparent with our patients about what their financial commitments to care is going to be. It may be an estimate. I mean, you may go, I've talked to a few clients and a few people who have gone so far as 
as calling and not only just searching on the internet for validating their insurance using whatever tool or calculator, but actually calling the insurance companies and the insurance carriers to get hard numbers and then calling their patients back and saying, listen, I just got off the phone with your health insurance company. They said, you know, your copay is this, you know, let's say it's 40, 50 bucks and we're going to see you for this eight treatments or whatever. On top of that, this is what your insurance is not going to cover. So you're going to have to expect at least a few hundred dollars here or there. And even if they're off by a little bit, their patients are just eternally grateful that somebody cared about them enough to give them a call back and say, listen, we've got at least an estimate for you. It's better than you know just telling you what, what the online tool told us. It's important that we begin to pull back that curtain for our patients. We want to provide them with as much information as possible up front so they don't get an ugly surprise afterwards. So that peak end rule doesn't have a negative effect on their view of the services that we have provided to them. Moving on from that to commitment number seven is we need to forget time-based productivity metrics and find an alternative way to measure our effectiveness both as clinicians and as healthcare organizations and facilities. Now, I've written about this a good bit. One of the more popular articles on our site is titled Productivity, Can We Forget About It Already? <laughs> you can find that at rehabupracticesolutions.com slash productivity. So rehabupracticesolutions.com slash productivity. But whether you're a new grad, a seasoned clinician, healthcare administrator, you have run into what I call the productivity paradigm, where we're using time-based productivity metrics as a way to, quote, improve efficiency, maximize revenue, whatever you want to call it, at the clinic or at that facility. Healthcare organizations, hospitals, practices, and clinics run on productivity these days. Again, as I like to say, sometimes you can come to the conclusion that healthcare consultants ruin healthcare by turning everything into a, a Lean Six Sigma process right? Trying to improve the efficiency based on the numbers. However, focusing on time-based productivity metrics causes us to miss what we truly should be assessing. We miss out on measuring those quality parameters, the quality of the healthcare services being provided. A system that is based on time-based productivity creates an incentive structure that causes clinicians and organizations to try to get the most out of every patient. You've been there before. You've heard, you know, how can I get four units out of this patient? Or how can I get, you know, 99 minutes or, w- or whatever it is, depending on your setting, um, in a way that cuts down on documentation and administration time, right? Because if you're seeing eight patients for four units each, it's less notes than seeing 10 or 15 patients at two units each. However, what that incentive system does is it, incentivizes it's basically any hourly rate or any time-based pay does this you're incentivizing the lowest acceptable quality of care for the longest or the maximum amount of time that it's allowed ultimately which again is not something that we want to do in healthcare especially when we're trying to decrease the overall cost the burden of cost to the healthcare system and often what is lost in this environment is the ability to focus on individual patient needs. It's time that we all begin focusing on what really matters 
I mean, sure, you can have your time-based productivity metrics or your utilization rates if that's what you want to keep tracking. But what we want to be really focused on is those patient-driven outcomes. Because again, ultimately, healthcare is about each patient, each unique patient, rather than the treatment units, the number of minutes billed, procedure codes, which are all, again, we need them to get paid. But that shouldn't be the focus of healthcare. Again, it should be about the people. And then the final commitment is that we, as clinicians, individual clinicians, need to lead our patients and guide them through the treatment process towards achieving their desired outcomes and goals. And part of this, from an administrative standpoint, from a culture standpoint, involves changing the culture of our healthcare organizations and healthcare systems to become partners or guides to our patients as opposed to Mr. Fix-Its. I had a, a, a student ask me one time about whether or not we could do the same thing for multiple patients. And, the, and as, the, as the conversation unfolded, it became apparent that what the student was asking was really, well, what do you do if the patient is expecting this or wants this, or the patient says that they think they need, I don't know, ultrasound or some kind of manual technique or something like that. And my response to that student was, are you a licensed experienced clinician or are you a vendor? Are your services and treatment plans off the shelf or one size fits most? Or are you that trusted advisor? Are you an expert clinician that leads their patients throughout the treatment process? Or do you just take orders like a good waiter? Most clinicians will respond, absolutely not, right? We're not waiters. We develop individualized treatment plans for each patient. And in reality, most clinicians really want to meet that goal. They want to strive to be those expert clinicians that are providing individualized treatment plans. However, Oftentimes, clinicians can find themselves being driven by their patients. They allow patient desires, expectations, even views of what to expect in healthcare (laughs) to overly influence the course of treatment that they develop or that they plan for those patients. Now, sometimes, again, if you're following with these commitments here, sometimes it stems from poor communications skills in general or poor just ineffective communication at the outset of a patient engagement or even not addressing patient expectations early enough. And so rather than dealing with an unhappy patient, no one wants those negative reviews, right, online, the clinician decides to placate the patient, give them this treatment, or they do this treatment technique in addition to whatever's going on. The problem is, is that that doesn't prevent the patient from leaving a bad review (laughs) or ending up dissatisfied with treatment at the end. In fact, these patients are often more likely to have a negative experience in your clinic because what happened was you allowed, you abdicated your responsibility to lead the patient engagement. You allowed the patient to take a leadership role. And whenever it had to be taken back, for whatever reason, the patient becomes upset and frustrated. So in order to prevent this, what we've got to do as clinicians is leading, is stepping up to the plate and lead our patients. Now, this, this means that we have to have those crucial conversations, those radically candid conversations, depending on which book you want to 
to stem from. But we need to have those difficult conversations with patients, usually right after we have a value conversation with them. We need to be able to have those those conversations that address the expectations, mismatched expectations, unrealistic expectations, or just expectations that our clients might come to our clinics already having in their head. And we need to be able to have a conversation with them that outlines clearly what to expect and your role as a clinician that is not just a waiter or an order taker, but as a trained professional who is doing everything that you can to help them overcome whatever dysfunction or diagnosis that they now find themselves with. So we need to lead our patients and lead the relationships with our patients through the treatment plan, the entire course of treatment. So that's all I've got for this episode. I know I've been running a little long. I thought, honestly, I was like, I can knock this out in 20 minutes. And apparently I cannot. (laughs) So... Again, just a wrap up the eight commitments here, biopsychosocial approach being number one, interpersonal skills and building relationships, number two, putting people ahead of procedures, number three, confidently communicating the value you provide, and number four, prioritizing patient engagement, number five, embracing transparency, number six, finding other metrics of effectiveness rather than time-based productivity, and number seven, and then leading your patients in number eight. If this message resonated with you and you like it, I'd encourage you to stick around. Follow us on the interwebs. Find us at iTunes, all those other places where you can find podcasts. You can check us out at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. For the podcast, you can find us at betteroutcomes.show. Until the next episode... Uh, Be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.